everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. It's the week of July 26th, 2021. We're just about to wrap up the first week of the Tokyo Olympics. And while the men's and women's road, time trial, and cross-country mountain bike events are now behind us, seven full days of track cycling are set to kick off starting on Monday. The United States track team is hoping for a good showing at the Tokyo Games, and American company Felt is once again the bike sponsor for both the individual and mass start events. Felt has supplied the team with an all-new setup for the mass start event called the TKFRD that the company, of course, is claiming to be the best machine for the task at hand. But interestingly, riders in the individual events will be on the same left-hand drive TAFRD that Felt supplied for the Rio games five years ago. Now, given the often minuscule time differences, small improvements in equipment can have a pretty big effect. And we've seen some incredibly dramatic improvements in recent months, particularly from the British and Australian federations, for example. So how is it that the Americans have shown up in Tokyo with bikes that are half a decade old? To get some answers to these questions and more, I rang up the folks at Felt Bicycles to dig into the backstory on how this situation came to be. So sit back and take a listen to what Felt had to say and make sure you catch all the action with all the track events starting on Monday. Thanks as always for listening. See you next time. Okay, uh, a little bit of housekeeping first. Could I get each of you to just say your name and uh, I guess what your official title and or what you do at Felt is? Hi, my name is Michael White and I'm the Senior Marketing and Communications Manager at Felt Bicycles. Uh, I'm Jeremiah Smith. Uh, I'm the Engineering Manager at Felt Bicycles. Uh, I've worked here for seven years now. I'm Alexander Soria. Uh, my official title is Director of Product Development, and I've been working with the development team and at Felt for going on a decade now. Wow. Some long timers here. Good to see it. Well, thanks to all of you for, for making the time to be with us today to talk about track bikes. Um, so, yeah, let's just go ahead and dive right in. Um, I guess first and foremost, what I'd like to hear about is uh, you know, kind of just get a, a little bit of a recap on how long Felt has been a supporting sponsor for the U.S. Olympic track team uh, and also kind of how that came to be. Yeah, no problem. James, you know, there's quite a bit of history within Felt and things have changed a bit over the years. And when Felt was originally started, it had quite a few team members from the GT era. And those guys, I should mention by name, Guys like Bill During, Jeff Socek had an instrumental part in the history and connection to not only track cycling, but USA cycling and racing in general. So I think when Felt got it going in its proper sense, there was already a connection from the past and a very viable connection with creating very forward, technically facing frames. And I think that in its latest iteration, it's probably the 2008 Olympic cycle with the launch of our first carbon fiber TK. That's the 1.0, as we say it. And we've had a strong relationship working with USA Cycling since. I still have a great relationship with Jim Miller. We still go back and forth. We addict to interface quite a bit. And uh, it's always exciting to have the opportunity to bring these types of very specified, very interesting frames to a place and a market that is in generally, I feel, commercially ignoring the segment, right? So 
that's the basic history on it. If you want to know anything specific beyond that, I'm happy to fill you in. But that's the 10,000 foot macro overview. Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the, the niche nature of track racing in general because, um, I mean, sponsoring you know d- sort of diving into a relationship like this, I'd imagine, is not a terribly inexpensive venture for felt, uh, all things considered. Um, and you know, the Olympics only comes around every four, or I guess, five years now. <laughs> um, you know, there's always kind of a, a, a questionable commercial benefit, I would say, depending on the segment that a company decides to sponsor. But what does Felt get get out of this? I mean, I guess Felt, you know, relative to a lot of other companies, it does seem like Felt has a disproportionately greater interest or presence in the track world. Um, mm-hmm. Is that basically where Felt sees the benefit? I think there's multiple benefits to creating bicycles for the track. I mean, in its purest sense, a track bike is a very simple bicycle, right? I think that that's where you get a lot of interest with first-time bicycle riders moving towards a track bike or what is sometimes known as a fixie, right? It's just so simple. You have handlebars, you have a frame, and you have a drive train. Pretty straightforward operation. But in terms of Felt's interest in the category, as we already mentioned, we've had a long, long, rich history with racing. And when you look at the velodrome racing specifically, it certainly is not to make a huge commercial benefit for Felt, correct? But part of the viability study that we do on these bicycles is to ensure that we can play by the UCI rulebook as well as offer a frame set that is going to be technologically advanced, as well as offering a platform that is commercially available to anybody out there. So in terms of innovation, making sure that we are creating forward-thinking frame sets that are going to be not only captivating the market from an interest standpoint, with things like left-hand drive. It also has the ability to, and Jeremiah, you can jump in here if you'd like, but there are benefits to transition some of those asymmetric tube sets or ideas that come on this very simple, very technically forward bicycle and implement those into other areas of the company, whether it be road, whether it be gravel, whether it be even mountain bikes, which we are no longer taking as big of a step in. Okay. Um, let's talk about this new TK then. I guess, would this be the 3.0 version? Is that right? This is the second generation of the carbon TK. Okay. So the first one being 2008, and then the next iteration, which was originally intended for 2020 launch, and actually is going to be now, like you already mentioned, a five-year cycle. So we're looking at 2021 official Olympic launch for this guy. Okay, so what is the story for what is the story with this version of the TK now, uh, in particular relative to the previous one? Yeah, no problem. You know, with track racing, we don't see too much change, or at least as much change as we would see in road or other areas of racing, which would really force forward iterations as quickly as you see in maybe road where it's you know maybe two-year product life cycles so the first tk as you mentioned was 2008 cycle and we have gained quite a bit of knowledge since then so we had 2008 for the tk 1.0 2009 
2016 for the TA 2.0. And frankly, we learned quite a bit in that creation of the TA FRD 1.0, which couldn't be ignored and needed to be implemented in a more, let's just say, generally applicable model. And what I mean by that is that the TAFRD is very purpose-built for pursuit cycling. It's very limiting in terms of which componentry you can run. It is totally proprietary, intentionally so, to create the fastest pursuit bicycle that we could. And in that, we knew that we had another segment of the market that we needed to capitalize on specifically with regards to track racing. And that's your mass start riders and your everyday riders that are not looking for your $26,000 track bicycle. So although the TAFRD is commercially available and you or any other individual or team can purchase one, we knew that we needed to also have all of the benefits that we gained from that TAFRD innovation implemented in a more commercially available model. Okay. So what, I guess, what specific features have you taken from that pursuit model and integrated into the TK? Yeah, no problem. I mean, Jeremiah, if you want to hop in on an engineering standpoint, you feel free to, but from my perspective, James, it was the entire bicycle. The tube shapes were all, aside from the asymmetric left-hand drive, the tube shapes were almost apple to apple taken from the TAFRD and implemented in a more stiff, slightly more robust structure for the TK 2.0. It also uses all conventional non-proprietary systems that's on the front end. It uses a traditional fork. It uses a integrated but very easy to work on seat post that comes directly from the TAFRD and the spacing itself is now standard 100-120 versus the non-traditional proprietary spacing of the TAFRD, which is at 7095. Okay. So what are you hearing from the folks, the, the USA team riders who are on this bike I and mean, who have been who have been on it for some time, I would presume? Uh, what are you hearing from them as far as how this bike feels different from the previous version? Yeah, no problem. I think that the biggest change that we should focus on for the TK 2.0, James, is the change in geometry. I think that with the rules and regulations that happened in around like the 2012-2014 movement within track bicycling with Cam Meyer and the very long handlebars that were being used, we really saw a huge change in the rule books, which really changed how geometry as a whole is focused on for track bicycle racing. So I think that when we look at the TK 1.0 versus the TK 2.0, that's probably the biggest portion that we should focus on because we really made this TK 2.0 as geometry flexible as possible. We looked at the rule book and we went from the absolute smallest frame that we can make all the way to the absolute longest frame you can make. You cannot make a frame longer than the TK 2.0 in the largest size that we made. And that has been a very interesting development within racing over the last seven to eight years, which is track people just simply need a track bike with the absolute longest reach possible 
in order to, let's just say, sidestep or creatively sidestep that rule that was implemented with the five centimeters over the front hub in order to combat that extremely long reach handlebar that we were seeing being utilized a few years ago now. So I would say that that was probably the biggest feedback was the ability to get on a bike that allows them to get into the position that they really want to with mass start. And then of course, things like the bike is substantially faster being based off of the TFRD. I think that when you talk about points like this, it's important to note that, you know, the CFD, the wind tunnel testing, all of those are great things to talk about. But when we hear dramatic feedback from an athlete who's been on a frame and says, I can feel the difference within this versus the last frame. I think that that's an exciting, always an exciting feedback for felt to hear. I know for me specifically, for sure. And then beyond that, things like the the ability to easily work on the front end was one that we really wanted to make sure that we tackled. Look, James, You've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a decent amount of time. And we all know that this push to more integration, more hidden, there are complications that come along with that. So the reality here is that Felt has owns patents for technologies like bayonet technology, which would allow us to do a fully integrated front end technology that other companies, our competitors are utilizing in the marketplace today. It's not that we overlooked that front end and said, well, let's not do a bar. Let's not do a stem. Let's not do a bayonet system. We heard the feedback from the athletes. We heard the feedback from the riders and we wanted to deliver a platform that had extreme ease of use to complement the TAFRD in a master always uh, to give that two platform approach to track, which is frankly a platform that I don't really see out there. Certainly not from the big competitors where who, frankly, they really don't even have one bike, let alone two to address. Okay. This yeah. That, that is one thing I noticed when I was at the velodrome yesterday that, um, you know, the, the pursuit bikes seem to have more, kind of custom one-off cockpits built up. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the mass start bikes, they, uh, there was certainly more variation in terms of the sorts of handlebars and stems that they were running. And, uh, I would imagine some of that boils down to, you know, some level of personal preference, but it does seem like a lot of it just boiled down to kind of fit and sizing preferences more than anything, which, uh, certainly would, you know, that sort of standard setup up front would afford more flexibility, which to me, I, I, I personally see would be a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. It's a difficult conversation, James, honestly, because when you take that approach, you almost intentionally build in the ability to criticize, right? And what I mean by that, James, is that, look, we understand that when you do STEM handlebar combinations, the amount of tooling, and I'm going to go down a production standpoint, is substantial, right? So if you're doing 80, 90, 120, 130, 140 in different in different degrees with different handlebar combinations. I don't know a company that's doing it in enough variations to truly handle all of the preferences for athletes. And track is a very specific segment. And I feel like our Bayonet 1.0 system handled all of those degrees of flexibility quite well. 
but it didn't it didn't address all of them. And when you put yourself into a standard system, you give the ability to run the stem that you want, the handlebar you want, and the general feedback on that switch has been very positive. Although it is against what we're seeing in the market as a whole at the moment. So does that mean then on the flip side that you are voluntarily making the decision to, I guess, leave some theoretical performance advantages on the table? I wouldn't say that it's a performance advantage or a detraction, our approach. No, I would say that a rider's comfortability on the bike and ensuring that they can get into the position and utilize the reach and the drop and the degree on the stem and the type of stem I think all of those are a bigger benefit, especially when you're dealing with track bikes, which are not talking about integrating cables, integrating routing, all of those things. So if we're talking about a benefit of having a standard clamp stem to a standard handlebar versus having an integrated stem handlebar, I am very happy to say that our studies on that have been quite marginal differences, if anything. Okay. So then would it be safe to say then that you are essentially trading a marginal gain for a much more substantial gain then? I would say that rider comfort, especially rider having the ability to choose the setup that they want, from my perspective, from my riding perspective, from athlete feedback, has been a tremendous benefit and one that I think uh, pays dividends in racing and comfortability on the track, for sure. Okay. Um, To the best of your knowledge, how different is this TK from what athletes from other countries are going to be using? I think that it's an important point to make, James, to say that we don't look at the TK as freestanding and we don't look at the TA as freestanding. We see those as two complementary items to get the job done. I think that when we look at what other competitors in the market have given, I think it's clear that they take one frame platform and make small changes in order to adjust to pursuit use or to adjust to mass start use. So I don't think it's fair for me to compare the TK to one bike or the TA to one bike. I think that when you look at both as a complementary effort to track bicycling, I don't think that there's a better option or arsenal for any individual or team to have. Now, when you're talking about most racers, I don't know if everybody's going to go out and spend over $30,000 on a bicycle and a frame. I think we're realistic about that. So part of designing the TK 2.0 was to ensure that it did pursue just as well. And I think that when we approached it, I think that taking this standard cockpit, standard spacing, non-left-hand drive was the best way to approach that because we certainly did have the conversations internally about implementing left-hand drive and creating a system that would allow the end user to benefit from those findings that we have found and implemented on the TAFRD. But the consensus internally was that if the goal is to truly be a standard track bicycle, we shouldn't implement anything that is proprietary of use. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I guess even as is the the TK, even as you know, without all the proprietary stuff, I, I think it's worth pointing out. It's you know not inexpensive. It's still fifty five hundred dollars US for a frame set. So definitely. Um, yeah. So we're not we're not talking about just sort of you know I just kind of want to dabble in track racing sort of bike. Yeah, for sure. It is. Uh, you brought it up earlier with commercial viability and 
Felt's approach to track racing as a whole. And, you know, the first TK 1.0 had quite a great product life goal of 10 years. And when we look at all these pieces of the puzzle, when we look at all the engineering might that needs to go behind these, uh, we're comfortable where we're at at the price, but we're not unaware that the price is not, uh, certainly not affordable, right? And I'm doing that in bunny ears intentionally because uh, I feel like that's a relative term anyway. You know, okay. cycling in general is, uh, I feel, a very expensive sport, especially when you look at frame sets, but that's a whole different tangent we can go on. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out bikes are not cheap. Yeah, exactly. Turns out bikes are not cheap. Um, all right, well, uh, moving on to the pursuit bike. Um, I mean, as you said, that bike is certainly a lot more, a lot more radical. Um, and you know, I, I, I would imagine there are. Well, I, I know this is this is not exactly a, a new topic of conversation because that bike is not new for the, these Olympic Games. But um, I guess just to recap, can you can you go through some of the features on that thing that does make that bike, I guess, what it is and what makes it unique. Yeah, certainly. I think that we could start at the front end and make our way back. We have an integrated bar stem combo that is custom fit for each individual rider as they order it. We have asymmetric tube shapes and proprietary layup to ensure that the extremely minimal frontal and down tube, top tube surface areas are created in a way that is still stiff enough for the end user. Continuing back further, we have a inside-out clamping mechanism on the seat post itself, something that we call internally internal lock, which clamps the seat post against the outer wall of the carbon versus clamping the outside wall of the seat post inward, which is more traditional. We also have a left-hand drivetrain, and that is in combination with multiple partners, FSA, Stages, Phil Wood, and White Industries, as well as Head Wheels, were all involved in making that from a concept through uh, iterative designing into production itself. And then I think that the most visually obvious is the asymmetric right-hand side of the bicycle, which is coupled with the left-hand drive being uh, the standard side of the bicycle, I should say. Right. And that bike is particularly narrow too, right? Yes, correct. It is, uh, I would say, our history with GT and the creation of the superbike for the 90s Olympic Games was certainly a point of discussion when we were still in the ideation portion of this design. And there were a lot of debates back and forth about whether or not to make this bike 100-120, whether or not to make this bike totally proprietary. And the concept and final version of this was in order to make the bike truly as fast as we needed it to be, it needed to be as narrow and still address the needs of stiffness for all of the riders that would be utilizing it in pursuit. So it is certainly a pursuit specific bicycle. Uh, it's not a frame that if you had the ability to take it and put a sprinter 
who's 200 pounds on it, it wouldn't be to that level of stiffness. It is certainly intentionally driven to be a pursuit bicycle. And part of that, as you mentioned, is to be as narrow and asymmetric and left-hand drive as possible. Okay. And as for the left-hand drive, I mean, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess if my if memory serves and if my understanding is correct, essentially the reason why you elected to move the drivetrain to the left-hand side is, uh, my understanding is that it's because the, the relative airspeed is higher on the right side of the bike than the left side, so that you kind of, you gain some sort of marginal advantage by putting the more draggy bits on the inside part of the bike. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, James. You know, I can't take credit for this. You know, Jeremiah and my good friend, Anton Petrov, uh, came up with the original concept with Jeff Socek. And we did a lot of outside testing. We did a lot of on-bike velodrome testing. And we were certain that as you are traveling around a velodrome, you are feeling that wind come from the side. And essentially what we're saying there is that we had an estimated understanding that there was yaw experienced on the velodrome and that yaw experience was happening on that left-hand drive side. So as we started to work our way through the original on-bike velodrome testing and started to validate the fact that that was actually happening in real-world testing, then we started to create prototypes and start to work with left-hand drive systems to see if that was measurable using the same bike with right-hand drive and then taking that same bike and using it with left-hand drive. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we're talking about marginal gains, but when you're dealing with Olympic level athletes, a percentage point is huge. So we were confident that that marginal gain and the ability to create that right side of the bicycle so streamlined, it is essentially, if you look at the profile of the bike, completely flat on the right-hand side. So it's not just like we took a 100-120 crank set and bicycle and just switched it one side to the other. We all we took that 100-120, created it into a 70-95, swapped the crank from right to left, and then essentially took that right side and eliminated it down. So that's where you go from 100 to 70 and 120 to 95. It's just by taking that right side of the bicycle and bringing it in. I mean, it almost seems sort of like the, like the old hot rod equivalent of, of like shaving door handles, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there is a... <laughs> It, in that, in your point, James, there is an aesthetic benefit. The, the bike looks cool. You know, I think that when we finalized the design, we didn't really expect that left-hand drive to get as much traction marketing-wise as it did. But it certainly is easy to see. It is certainly easy to understand. But there is serious, iterative engineering work that got us to that point. It wasn't just a, hey, let's switch it to the left. Um, I think it has to be mentioned that this bike seemingly is essentially unchanged from, uh, I guess, the Rio games in 2016 now. Um, given that some other countries, I guess the UK and Australia in particular, um, mm. they seem to be making more radical changes to their Olympic track bikes in recent years. Um, is it, 
I, I guess, are you, are you confident that this bike can still be competitive given that, you know, essentially not a whole lot of development work has happened since the last cycle? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question, James. And one that I feel, um, I, I have to clarify with you first that that's the TAFRD that we're talking about specifically. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Not, not so, the TK. The T- yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we are surely pushing for innovation. And I think that that's the release of the TK 2.0, but specifically for the TAFRD, the version that you're talking about for this question, um, we all know the bikes you're talking about. We've certainly looked at the bikes you're talking about. The general thought process behind the very extreme application of what you're asking with the fork interface and the seat stay interface is something that felt has not only CFD tested, but also wind tunnel tested. We actually had a version, a less extreme version of that in an option for our TK 1.0. And I can say sure-footedly that the TAFRD being and having the benefit of being developed purposely with not only the frame, but the frame, the wheels, the tires, the drivetrain, all of those components being purposely designed and purposely built for this frame are wind tunnel and CFD testing was certainly the absolute fastest that we'd ever seen, including designs like you are referencing. Frankly, the designs that you're referencing, we've seen uh, little to marginal benefit, but only when used with a very wide variety of wheels and tires. And with the TAFRD, you don't have that benefit. You are solely locked into what we know is the absolute fastest wheel tire frame combination out there okay fair enough so in other words i mean despite the fact that you know this that ta pursuit bike isn't new it was already fast enough back then that it is still fast enough presumably now for tokyo uh certainly we know that it is the fastest bike we've ever had in the tunnel and we've had lots of other competitor bikes in the tunnel and specifically with the question that you're asking with regards to both fork interface and seat stay interface our testing uh has not shown any benefit to that specifically with our TAFRD design and the reason behind that is because of the purposely designed and purposely utilized wheel frame crank drivetrain interface. I think that that's a very key point to focus on. And I think that the easiest way for anybody to understand is that that tire to rim interface is so important, right? Because when the wind comes off the tire and hits the wheel, that is the creation of that benefit in aerodynamics. And if you have the ability to have the tire, wheel, and fork that you know is going to be utilized for the frame, you can purposely design that fork to be as fast as possible. And that creation of additional space was not something that we found to be beneficial in the design. It's certainly something we looked at. It's certainly something that we tested, but it wasn't fast for us. Okay, fair enough. Um, You know, going back to what you were saying earlier about how there have been some pretty major changes in terms of frame geometry, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, particularly with the the mass start bike, the the, the TK, um, 
Are there any trends that you see in track racing right now that might indicate, you know, some additional changes to track bikes in general that you might need to prepare for moving forward? Yeah, it's it's a great question, James, because track bicycling in general has been very similar with not only componentry, but frames for quite some time now. You look at the biggest component vendors in the world, your Shimano's, your SRAM's, and when you look at their track offerings, they are decades old, decades old. And when you look at companies that are continuing to innovate, uh, we can use uh, a wheel company, for example, your traditional Mavic offering, which is found on most track bicycles at the world and elite levels, the changes to the IO and Comet are essentially the same wheel that we saw many, many years ago. Maybe there's slight changes in layup, maybe there's slight changes in aerodynamics, but the reality is, is the wheel in the most part is very similar to what started. So do I see anything from a personal standpoint that I see is going to be revolutionary in track cycling within the next few years? Not anything that we didn't address with the TK 2.0. I feel like the only thing that we talked about that could have some positive feedback in the implementation would be through axle use. We talked about through axle use on the TK 2.0, but once you start going down that line, you start crossing into that proprietary versus standard offering. And if we were to make the TK 2.0 through axle, which we certainly looked at and certainly felt like that would create a more uh, robust wheel frame interface, we felt like we couldn't do it without universal sign-off. And when you talk about universal sign-off, you are talking about so many different companies from hub companies to wheel companies in order for them to adopt a standard on a, frankly, a segment that is mostly just continuing to churn unchanged. It would be a pretty big ask, I feel, right? Because like we mentioned, uh, we're looking at companies that have essentially been offering the same solution for decade now and in order for them to change substantially would be a pretty strong ask uh, and one that i'm sure that the viability studies at each individual company would probably come come back negative for them so right like for example you know like you know during a 7700 stuff has been out of date for I got, I'm not even sure exactly how long yeah now, but. exactly i mean it's still using octalink interface yeah. you know it, I don't think that Shimano would be on this podcast telling us that Octolink is superior to the traditional standards that are being used now with your 24 mil or your 30 mil or your 28.9. Wait, each one of those, you could argue the benefit being implemented in track racing. And it's not just Shimano, it's the SRAM Omnium as well. They're still on their GXP system. We know that they've gone from dub. If you look at their just standard marketing there are benefits moving to dub from GXP. There are benefits there. So I would assume that the Omnium crankset would experience those same benefits. That being said, I don't, I don't, I'm not surprised that they haven't made that change and they're not pushing for that change because it's a segment that is often overlooked by many people. Okay. Let me ask you a more general question, sort of to, to wrap things up a little bit then mm -hmm. given that, uh, track in many ways is so traditional, so set in its ways and so resistant to 
change in terms of some of those component interfaces that you're talking about? Like, again, like axle spacing, uh, you know, nutted axles versus through axles, um, you know, 144 mil five arm bolt spacing and that sort of thing, like across the board, you can go on and on and on. Why is it that felt or whoever would need to get kind of universal sign off for a change that could potentially make the bikes better? Whereas on the roadside, uh, or mountainside or, you know, whatever you want to look at these days, aside from track, um, you know, outside of track, it seems like it, it's almost kind of like the wild west in terms of what companies are willing to do in order to, you know, get some sort of tiny little marginal gain or some performance edge mm-hmm. over somebody else. Yeah, it's a great question, James. You know, if we had this conversation six years ago with mountain bikes, we'd be talking about exactly what you said, right? The wild, wild west in terms of standards and spacing and what's happening and why it's happening and the benefits and whether or not those benefits are truly there or whether or not that will be universally applicable to everybody else and what the adaptation rate will be and all of those different points that go into creating a bicycle and making sure that it's commercially viable and commercially available. Specifically for track, felt is very focused on this segment because of our long history within the segment. But I think that it's frankly ignored from others because it's not a particularly commercially rich marketplace. And I think that that's not an exciting answer, but I think that that's the reality of why these behemoth companies continue to ignore the segment. It's not that they couldn't create a platform to work within it. It's because it's not perhaps something that they want to be focused on, you know, or are more track bike selling than 100 millimeter cross country rigs or 140 millimeter trail rigs. No, I'm sure that the answer is no. <laughs> So in order for us to get that universal sign-off from all of these other companies, you would have to show some substantial benefit in order for that viability study to make that change. And I think that specifically for the TK, we didn't want to go down the route that we did with the TA again. We knew that we needed to make a platform that was living within these already implemented and standards that frankly i don't think they're going to change i've asked the question to the companies that we brought up before and they don't have any intention to change these components that have been around for like you said uh, i I feel like over a decade now right so when you're looking at your octolinks and your gxps and all these systems that are still being utilized and you brought up a lot of good points 144 bcd all of these items i feel i feel like until track truly gains the commercial success that other categories have, I, I would expect that we would not see these changes. And, and frankly, you could have a pretty decent argument about the marginal gains that you would make going from that bolt structure to through axle or going from 144 BCD to some other type of spacing, maybe four bolt spacing 110 like has been more predominant on road spacing lately. And I just don't think that the space is going to get to that, get to the point where it's going to be a focus for our competitors. And so to ignore that and go down that route for us is, it'd be great for us to say, Hey, we're doing through axles on the TK 2.0. 
make sure you adopt all your wheels to fit this. But <laughs> it's just not the reality of the marketplace at this point. Right. That's just not not going to happen. And, and unless a company like, you know, Felt or whoever were to make a probably very, very commercially questionable decision to, you know, introduce an entire ecosystem of track product that incorporated all those items together under one roof, then mm -hmm. that sort of sea change is not likely to happen. Certainly, we did that exercise with the TAFRD. We still are doing that exercise with the TAFRD and is a substantial lift certainly to have an ecosystem for drivetrain wheels frame and frankly we knew that the tk 2.0 one of the main focal points was that it needed to be standard use with standard componentry uh, i know a lot of people are going to be listening to this po podcast and just shaking their fist and just being like why can't everyone just do this with everything <laughs> You know, I, we said that earlier, James, and I feel like the full integration versus standard conversation is one that you and I could probably riff on for hours. And it's one that is certainly being pushed more and more heavily as the years go on. And Felt is still taking a very, what I feel, reasonable approach, which is in this level of integration that's happening, we are still trying to put the customer, the rider first, and have a balance between that integration and actual use case, right? We don't feel like you should have to spend two weeks on your bike in order to get it set up. So oh, what a revolutionary concept. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Alexander, Michael, Jeremiah, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it as always. Uh, and good luck in Tokyo, which is really not all that far away. Yeah, I appreciate your time, James. And Jeremiah, I'm sorry that uh, you didn't get too many words. And do you want to put anything in now as we're signing off or you feel like everything was covered okay? I think we, we covered everything pretty well. And uh, you're always a much better speaker than I am. So uh, <laughs> I like to listen to you better than myself. <laughs> I appreciate that, Jeremiah. And like you said, James, good luck to Team USA and all the other countries in the Olympics. And we hope everybody makes it out of there as healthy as they enter. So it's kind of a interesting time in the world still. And we hope everybody has a great Olympic cycle. Mm -hmm.